I get the worst parts from my mom and my dad. From my mom, I get that criminal mindset. From dad, I get that fear of being abandoned, of the people I love leaving me. It's the story of my life. I faked a car accident to get the money to get married. Of course, I didn't tell my wife-to-be, Susan, that little fact. I told her I'd been in an accident. That was the first of many lies. I lied to Susan for the entire nine years of our marriage. The first two to three years consisted of me lying so that she wouldn't find out I was a criminal. That ended when I was arrested for telemarketing charity fraud and then visits from law enforcement concerning the victims I had scammed online. No way to lie to Susan from that point about me being a crook. So the next six years were lies of, I've stopped, I'm going to stop, I will stop. It's not that serious. Just a little while longer. All lies. And we were married for nine years. In that entire nine-year span, the only real conversation we had was when the marriage ended. I can't think of a single worthwhile talk we had while we were married. Looking back now, I know it's because of those lies. How do you converse with someone that's a liar? Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. Now, what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. Brett, you know, in the news, there's all kinds of election stuff going on. Election and, stuff, yeah, you know, and and we got a president that's on the hot seat uh, right. right now about his involvement with the Ukrainians, sure, uh, you know, putting political pressure on. Uh, that brings up a subject that I'm curious about, and that is interference from other countries with our voting system. Oh. Now, well, you're opening up a can of worms there, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> what what kind of light can you shed on us? Uh, you know, if you want to. Uh, well, sure. I mean, we we can. Uh, that that that's something we'll talk about in a different episode okay. as we carry on. But just just to give my viewpoint on that, and I'm kind of apolitical more than anything. I, I hate both parties. I belong to the party of Johnson. There you go. <laughs> I get so, it. I, I belong to the Ken Allen party. There you go. And, and my thing is, is you know, we have this thing, or we've had this in the United States. The government's practiced th- this thing called the Monroe Doctrine, which basically says we own South America, and we will control whatever we want to down there. So for many years, they messed with whatever election they wanted to down there, but not just in South America, worldwide. And we're seeing now that, that it's happening to us. And not that it hasn't been. It's been happening, right? But the problem, of course, is that the Russian government has gotten extremely good with understanding that idea that I keep talking about of the perception of truth is more important than the truth itself. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what's real. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It matters what you can convince someone of. So if you look at a a, a financial cybercrime level, that, that becomes, oh, can I convince a merchant that I'm somebody else? Can I convince a merchant that I'm you when I'm using your credit card? Well, that's at a very low level. But if you extrapolate that to the higher degrees, can I convince a nation that someone else should be elected? 
can I skew an election? Because the perception of truth is more important than truth itself. And I don't care. I, I really don't care what you think about Donald Trump. Do you think he's a genius? Some people do. Do you think he's a fucking idiot? Some people do. That's right. All right? It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what you can convince the masses of. And like it or not, Donald Trump embraces that. He embraces that. He understands that idea. It doesn't matter what the facts are. <laughs> matters what I say and what people believe. Right. <laughs> but we'll talk about that. You know, this episode is not really supposed to be about that. But No, uh, it, I, I, I realize that. But I'm thinking uh, voter tampering, um, programming a series of uh, voting machines. Sure. Uh, now, to, certainly to you can do that, all right? Yeah. And here's the, here's the issue with that, all right? You're talking about tampering with voter machines. Right. Sure, you can do that. Absolutely you can. And that's been shown time and time again at these hacker conferences like Black Hat, DEF CON, everything else. Certainly you can do that. But here's the issue with that. Why would you do that when the only thing you need to do is, is just simply deploy some of these social engineering techniques of skewing the collective? You use Facebook. Use Facebook to put out enough fake news articles about the Democrats being pedophiles. Are you going to vote for a pedophile? Are you really going to do that? No, you're not. Right. So it's, it becomes all of a sudden the lesser of two evils. You may not like Donald Trump, but are you going to vote a pedophile into office? Somebody that hurts children. It's that type of skewing. That, that, that's much more effective. Much right. more effective. Exactly right. It's, uh, Alabama is a great example of convincing a whole bunch of people that, uh, well, you know, so what? Uh, she's done this or that, right. or he's done this or that. Um, they believe in the Lord, so I'm voting for That's them. It. That's <laughs> it. Like, right. you know, they're, they're Christian. Yeah. Roy Moore. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, man. That, that guy. Yeah. He's crazy. He absolutely is. Sociopaths. And in my opinion, I'm not I'm not a medical professional. Nope. But in my opinion, that dude fits the bill right there. Yep. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not going to say anything about him maybe liking young girls or anything else like that because that's not been proven. But you know, there's a lot of news out there that reports about this kind of stuff on it. And I'll, the only thing I can do is read the articles. But let's, instead of going down that rabbit hole, we will do that in a future episode because okay, I think right. that's that's needed. <laughs> let, let's, yeah, let, in fact, we might wait till after the election to, to do that one. Or the impeachment. Or, or, or the impeachment. <laughs> the, the impending impeachment. Because it, it looks more likely every day right now. Yeah, well, <laughs> we know what an impeachment can do. It can embarrass somebody. That's some about people. it. That's about it. But if you're a sociopath, it doesn't embarrass right. you. right. And, it, you know, it, I don't think anything's going to happen with that, and I don't think he does either. I don't think so. so. there you go. Anyway. <laughs> but, I, I was curious. So. Well, I, I, I may have talked more than I was supposed to and a little bit out of the side of my mouth on that one, too. But I have to talk to the editor and see what he can cut. Well, I say we let it ride. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, it was, um, I was thinking, I was, you know, we've talked a lot about the criminal activity and the Shadow Cruise story and all that. We've talked very little about the stuff that was going on in personal life at the same time. I was married to Susan. I've talked about her and how I shouldn't have married her, how I loved her, but I shouldn't have married her. And I mentioned at the, in the prologue, you know, I, I lied to her for nine years, man. We were married for nine years. Nine years. Now, that's 20% of your life. I was married to her for 20% of my life. And during that 20%, we never, and I mean this, we never carried on a real conversation. And that's that that and I knew that the entire nine. It was it was weird to me. We never talked about anything. You know, we would talk about movies and TV and maybe the books we were reading or games we were playing or something like that, but a real meaningful conversation, it never happened for nine years until the marriage fell apart at that point. And what brought that on? Well it was my lies, of course. Uh you know, the three, probably three years were me hiding my criminal activity from her. And I was not good about hiding that. You know, I did this charity fraud stuff. I got arrested, spent three months in, in the county jail for that. Got out, and then I start doing pirated software and all this other stuff and scams on eBay, and police start showing up. So that lie did not last very long. 
you know, it's, it took her three years to, to really accept that I was a criminal, is what happened. She wanted to deny it. Um, because she did love me. She did. I have no doubt about that. She loved me. But she didn't want to admit that her husband was a no-good scoundrel. So it took her three years to come to that conclusion. The next six years were me trying to tell her, oh, I've stopped. I will stop. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to quit just a little while longer. It's not that serious. The only people who are losing money are banks. <laughs> so, uh, And she got to the point where she liked spending the money. She did, but she had more. She had much more of a moral compass than I had. You know, she she knew what was right and what was wrong, and she cared about it. I knew what was right and what was wrong. I just didn't care. I was going to keep breaking the law, and I needed to justify that. And I used her as justification. I have to. Yeah, I have to provide for us. I'm the breadwinner. You want you want to live, don't you? Mm-hmm. So that was the justification. And where it started to fall apart, I hadn't taken a vacation. I was on a computer for, I don't know, 16, 18 hours a, a day at that point. And I was stealing a lot of money. I mean, I, the money was coming in. So I told Susan, I was like, look, I said, why don't we take two weeks? I won't touch a computer for two weeks. I'll put somebody else in charge. They, I'll call in every now and then. They can tell me what's going on. We'll go down to Orlando. We'll hit Disney. We'll stay at the resort there. We'll hit Universal for a week, Disney for a week. We'll just take some time off. And she was like, you know... Let's do that. Well, at the same time, she had wanted me to get her a computer. She was never big on computers or anything like that. So she wanted a computer. So I stole her from Dell because Dell's where you go to get computers if you're a thief, as well as a real person. I've, I'm a legitimate person now, and I still buy Dell instead of stealing instead of stealing them. But I carted her a uh, like a six thousand dollar Dell de- desktop computer. So she was on. She started being on a computer pretty often. She signed on to one of these uh, forum sites called IGN, which is an electronics game site and everything else. It's still around today. And she was really active on the forums there. So we go to Orlando, and she got to where she wanted. We didn't take any laptops with us or anything like that. She wanted to go to Kinko's of a night to start, you know, to touch base with the forums. And I'm like, you know, I'll drop you off at Kinko's. You do whatever you want to. When do you want me to pick you back up? And it was usually about an hour and a half, something like that. Well, I didn't know that it wasn't the forums that she was talking about. She was chatting with this dude, was wow. what it was. She had uh, she had found a guy that was giving her more attention than I was, and she was trying to become romantically involved with him. And uh, it took about... So we came back from Orlando, and I found out about it. I forgot how I actually found out, but I found out about it. And uh, there were tears on her side and crying and everything else. And as far as I was concerned, we fixed it. You know, just don't do it again. Everything's fine. I understand. I'll, sh- I'll, I'll take some more time off of work. I understand what the problem is. Don't worry about it. Well, two months later, and here's the thing. I, I grew up in a, in a home where my mom cheated religiously on my father. So I have a hyper sense of awareness. And openly. 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 But I, I do, I have a really hyper sense of awareness on that. I know if something is off, simply because of the childhood that I had. I know that. So I started noticing with Susan, she'd come to bed late. I'd go to bed, and she'd go come to bed after me a few hours. Hmm, it's a little odd, but okay. I'd walk by the computer where she was on, and she would minimize the screen. Hmm, okay. <laughs> All this other stuff, and it kept going. I'm like, you know, something's going on. <laughs> So I got uh, I got up early one morning. I, I was up early most of the time anyway. I got up early one morning and I put tracking software on our computer. Let's find out what the hell you're doing. All right. Let it go for two days. Two days later, come back, check and see what the software has found. Found out that she was not only talking to another guy, not the same one, but a different one altogether, but she was cheating on me. She had been... Sp- you know, sleeping with him, having sex. She had been sending him videos and pictures and and everything else. And she had been talking about, not only that, but she had been talking about the criminal activity that I was engaged in. Mm. So it was like a complete betrayal. So I sat there that morning and I was like, what the hell? So she was asleep. After about an hour and a half of me sitting there just staring at it, I get up. 
walk into the bedroom, open up the closet, get out a suitcase, start packing her clothes. She wakes up. Where are you going? I looked at her and I was like, I'm not going anywhere. You are. So she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, I found out about the guy you're cheating with. Now here's the thing. I really believe, looking back now, I believe that she knew that was the only way that she could get away. I really believe that. I think that she, I think she understood that if it, if it would have been anything else, anything else, that I would have been, no, let's work it out. But because of my mom, that, that history that I had with her cheating on my dad and everything else, that that, that was the absolute line in the sand right there. Now, whether she knew that consciously or subconsciously, I don't know. But um, we broke up at that point. I did not take her back to, to, to eastern Kentucky at that point. We were in Charleston, South Carolina. It actually took a week <laughs> to, to do the breakup. And um, I went through that. If that first day was just me being angry was what that was. By the end of the first day, it got into uh, just depressed. I would uh, I was walking around the house literally in a stupor, crying constantly, but I knew it was over. There was no fixing it. You know, you've got to go. Uh, that was that was it. And of course, she was crying. Everything else. So it took about five days to work through that. I went and I had a uh, Mini Cooper. I went and rented a uh, a big truck to put all of her stuff in. She called her mom and uh, told her she was coming home. Told her mom she was coming home. And her mom, of course, they knew I was a criminal. They were happy to hear it. Yeah. And uh, so I loaded up all of Susan's stuff and drove that seven hours to Eastern Kentucky to Hazard and uh, dropped her off at the house. And on the way there, on the way there, I had the first real conversation I had ever had with my wife in nine years. You know, talked about the uh, the abuse that I had uh, had as a child, the uh, the type of life that I'd had, why I thought that I broke the law. Just a real conversation. Now, was it full of bullshit? Me telling lies about why I broke the law, justifying probably. But uh, for that point in my, in my life, it was the first real conversation I'd ever had with Susan, ever, ever. And I told her that I was like, "This is the first time I think we've ever talked." And she's like, "Yeah, I think it is." But that's the last time I saw her was at that point. I come home, and I'm in that daze. You know, that, uh, that, the reason I commit crime is because I'm scared of losing the people around me, so I have to buy that love, right? I have right. to uh, just buy them. You know, it's not enough for me to tell somebody I love them. I have to show it through gifts or show it through all the work I do or, or something like that. So I was going through the house and just constantly crying, and I, I started to get suicidal. I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to live anymore, you know, and uh, realized I was getting suicidal. So I pick up the damn phone book and start going through the yellow pages for psychologists. Find me a psychologist. Uh, find it under criminal psychology. It was the only one listed in the yellow pages <laughs> under criminal psychology, and I was like, you know, I probably need that. <laughs> So, I forgot the doctor's name. I keep wanting wanted to call the doctor Catherine Martin, but that's the doc's name from Hannibal Lecter, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't, I, I don't remember what the doctor's name was, but I called her, and I was crying, and I told her. I was like, man, I need to see somebody. And um, she told me, she was like, come in right now. So, I was like, okay. You know, bawling like a baby. So, I go in, and I tell I tell her everything tell her, you know, I'm this criminal. This is what I've done. My wife left me. I don't know what to do. And I saw that psychologist for about four months and I, I told her everything. You know, I told her the type of childhood I had, um, the type of criminal activity I was doing, everything else. And she was more, she was more intent on trying to get me to stop breaking the law than anything. Mm -hmm. So she was, she, she kept trying to talk me into going into real estate. And I kept joking, is there a difference? <laughs> and, uh, 
but she uh, she did some good, man. I it, it got me to open up. It's the first time I'd ever talked about any of that stuff, any of it, to anyone. You know, so uh, I, I I would leave. I'd cry. Of course, I'd cry during every session. I saw her once a week, and I'd cry during during every session. But I'd leave there feeling good. You know, it felt clean yeah. when I'd leave. You know, I guess it's like uh, <laughs> the Catholics going to confession. Yeah, I mean, you, it, yeah. it helps to um, to get that stuff out, to be able to clean, <laughs> cleanse yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. What happened, Ken, was um, I had never been to a strip club before. And I didn't start drinking until I was 34, until Susan leaves. So I, I started seeing this psychologist, and I'd never had friends. I, never had, I had associates, had never had friends. So I'd been a stage actor, and I decided, you know, it's time I get out and start trying to, to do something other than just sitting at the house, breaking the law, and being sad. So I signed on for some acting classes, and I started making friends in, that, in the acting community. And, uh, of course, I lied to him about what I did for a living. Mm, of course. Became a joke. Uh, my, what do you do for a living, Brett? Oh, I'm a fraud consultant. That's what I told him. I just didn't tell him what, what side of the fraud equation I was on. And, and uh, let me just interject something. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who didn't catch the episode where we talked about how you and I met. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're next door neighbors. <laughs> and he gave, gave me a business card. And I look up his website and it says most wanted. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, that's a gimmick to get business. Uh, yeah, okay. Yep. Well, uh, well, I guess it is a gimmick to get business, but it's the truth. <laughs> but it was the truth. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Go. Yeah, so. Tell me more. I had told these people that, you know, I was a fraud consultant. I, I worked to, uh, to prevent fraud. You know, I didn't tell them I was the guy who consulted people on how to commit fraud while I was doing it myself. So I um, had what I called were friends, but I was lying to them at the same time. So I get it in my head. I was like, you know. Susan's gone. This is four months later. I'm like, Susan's gone. I'm ready for another girl. No dates. I don't know where to go to get a date. So I'm 34. And I'm like, eh. Strip club. <laughs> Works every time, I guess. So, you know, they're pretty at strip clubs. I'd never been to a strip club before. So I start looking for... I get online because I'm that guy that looks for everything online. I get online and I start searching for strip strip clubs. And I start searching for... Now, which strip clubs have the strippers that have sex? That's what I'm interested in. <laughs> so I, the, the, the one I settled on was not the best strip club in the city, of course. It was the low-level one. A place called Joe's Roundup was what it was called. So I walked into Joe's Roundup. There were two girls there. Two girls. And Joe's Roundup was, the entire establishment was probably 30 feet wide, 40 feet deep, was how big it was. And so I walked in, bellied up to the bar. By, by this point, I'm drinking. You know, I, I've learned to drink by this point. And I ordered, my drink of choice was a white Russian. And I got that from the Big Lebowski. I was like, if, if, if the dude can drink it, by God, Brett can drink it. Let's start with the white Russian. So I belly up at the bar. I was like, white Russian. This old lady behind the bar, I forgot what her name was. She was like, we don't have that. I was like, well, what do you got? Beer only. Well, I, I don't drink beer. I don't know anything about beer. And I was like, well, give me a beer. What do you want? I was like, I don't know what's any good. <laughs> and she was like, what? And I was like, well, give me something. So she gives me a Michelob Ultra. That's what she gives me. So about this time, this blonde, one of the two dancers, there was an African-American dancer. Her name was Juno. And there was a blonde dancer. Her name, her stage name was Faith. So Faith comes over and sits down next to me. Starts talking. She's like, "Uh, you want to buy me a drink? You want to buy me a drink? I knew that was coming. I was like, yeah, I'll buy you a drink. I said, what do you want? So she tells the bartender something. The bartender gives her this cocktail. Now, this cocktail is $40. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking, I'm like, that's $40? She's like, yeah, that's what drinks are for the girls. And I'm like, that's pretty high. <laughs> and she's like, well, you wanted to buy me a drink. I was like, yeah. She's like, would you like to go in the private area? 
And I was like, where's the private area? So she points to this little booth with a curtain on it. She's like, uh, we can go back there. And I was like, yeah, it's like, let's do that. She's like, well, how much time do you want? And I was like, how much time can I get with you? And she's like, well, if you buy a bottle, you get until the bottle's done, at least two hours. And I'm like, I'll tell you what, let's do the bottle. Well, the bottle was a bottle of Corbell champagne, $400. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. So give the $400. She and I, her name was Elizabeth. We head back there, and uh, we ended up talking for two hours. Now, I didn't understand that, that I didn't know anything about the strip club environment or the people who frequent strip clubs. I thought I was an anomaly. It turns out that a lot of men... The only thing they want to fucking do is talk. Yeah. And I was one of them. All right? So I go back and I start talking with Elizabeth. And she's sitting there drinking. The, I don't drink any of that crap. She drinks the, the entire bottle. And we talk for about two and a half hours. And she's filling me up. Not, not physically. But trying to figure out how much money Brett Johnson's got. What kind of car you got? What kind of watch is that? Oh, it's an Omega. What kind of Omega is that? Oh, what kind of shoes you got? She's, she's filling me out. Where do you live? Oh, you live on Folly Beach. Do you own a house out there? Oh. That's a lovely little island. That's too. a great island. It's a great island. Yeah. So, <laughs> I leave that night. Now, that was the first time I'd ever, ever walked into a strip club. I leave that night, and I've got Elizabeth on my mind. You know, because she's a good-looking girl. She's a good-looking girl. I was 34. She was 23 at that point. So, um, that's the first time I walked into the strip club, and I walk back in a week later, and I ask if Elizabeth is there, and of course she is, there's only two dancers there. <laughs> so I was like, let me talk to her. She comes over, and I was like, look, I said, uh, second time I've been to strip club is tonight. I said, I don't plan on coming back in here. I'd like to know if you'd like to go out to dinner with me. So she looks at me, she's like, well, I can't go to dinner, I'm working. I was like, well, lunch? She's like, let's go to lunch. I was like, all right, you pick the place. <laughs> so she picks this place called Rue de Jean, French restaurant. I'm like, okay. So I go back and I tell my supposed friends in the theater business, I, I've got a date. And they're like, outstanding, you've got a date. Where'd you meet her? I lied about that. <laughs> I didn't want her to know I'd met a stripper. Then the next question, where are you taking her for lunch? I'm like, Rue de Jean, what is that? And JC, my buddy, he looks at me, he's like, you're taking her to Rue de Jean. I'm like, yep. He's like, she picked that or you picked that? I was like, she picked that? And he's like, take your wallet with you. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, it's not the most expensive, but it's expensive. I'm like, how expensive? He's like, you going to be drinking? I was like, more than likely. He's like, probably run you three, four hundred dollars. I was like, what are they selling over there? <laughs> and he's like, that's what Charleston Mills run if you pick a good restaurant. I was like, three to four hundred dollars. He's like, at least that's what you're going to spend. I was like, fine. <laughs> so I ended up meeting Elizabeth. It's like three days later. Met her at uh, at Rue de Jean before she went to work. And I spent, I think it was like three seventy-five, something like that. And we started dating. And um, I got it. I guess I got it in my head, Ken, that I loved her I, pretty quickly, pretty quickly. Um, the stepping stone relationship. Yeah, yeah. I needed somebody to uh, to fill that gap. Yeah. And uh, I got it in my head that that I loved her. She, uh, she, of course, was. She was a damaged, very damaged person. She was. Um, she didn't want to uh, to be intimate or physical or anything else like that. And I kept thinking that, you know, if I kept investing in that relationship, if I just waited it out, that it'd work out all right. So, of course, it started where that first manifested was, oh, I, I love these purses. I love these purses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had never... I was married to Susan. Susan was from eastern Kentucky. We didn't know what a, an expensive purse was. We didn't know what, ex, ex, you know, expensive shoes. An expensive purse to us 
was a coach purse, that's $200. Alright, so when, when Elizabeth mentioned, I really like this Jimmy Choo purse, I'm like, well shit, I can buy you a purse! So I had told uh, another one of my theater friends, you know, I'm, I think I'm really falling in love with this girl, and you know, I'm thinking about buying her this purse. And she's like, well, what kind of purse is it? And I tell her, she's like, well, that's an expensive purse. And I was like, yeah, I, I figured that. And then uh, her name was Heather. She, Heather was like, you know, if you really love her, why not? You've got the money, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I've got the money. She's like, well, why not? So I go and spend $2,500 for a purse. <laughs> Third date in. Third date in. So I met her at Rue de Jean again. Told Elizabeth, I was like, I got something for you. She's like, yeah. I was like, yeah. Well, I didn't understand the stripper mentality of that's normal too. They find somebody they can milk and get this shit from them. So I give her this $2,500 Jimmy Choo purse. And of course, I'm sure Elizabeth at that point sees dollar signs. So we start talking even more at that point. And it becomes this, this circular thing of me doing expensive meals gifts, $1,000 shoes, $2,000 purses, blah, 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 blah. Until I get to the point, and she's not, I mean, we're, we're having lunch and everything, but we're not, we're not making out. We're not having sex, anything else like that. And of course, I'm getting a little concerned at this point. I'm like, I'm emotionally attached to this woman, and nothing's going on, Brett. What the hell? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm like, and it, it becomes that thing of... Uh, you know, I just got to keep investing. If you keep it going, Brett, you'll win her over. So it gets to be her, it's her birthday at this point, and I tell her I love her. And, uh, of course, she gets real happy about that. I ended up moving her in my house. Now, she's still stripping. I moved her in my house. She did tell me she loved me. Has sex with me that night, I tell her I love her. All right? Works every time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> she's still stripping, though. Right. Well, what happens is... is uh, Girl's got to make a living. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, she wouldn't She wouldn't come home from stripping. You know, the, the bar would close at, I, I think, like 3 a.m., something like that. She wouldn't show up until 8 o'clock in the morning. And usually that showing up at 8 o'clock in the morning meant her calling me, telling me to come and get her that she could not drive home. And she'd be in a parking lot someplace sitting in the car and literally couldn't drive home. So I'm like, you know, something's going on there. So I, I bring her home one day and she goes straight to bed. And I'm looking at her purse and I, and I was 34. In my entire 34 years of life, I had never searched through a woman's purse in my entire life. But her purse is there, and I'm like, by God, I'm going to find out what the hell is going on with this. Go through her purse and find cocaine. Mm. And I had never seen cocaine in my life at that point. But I found the straw coated with cocaine and everything. And uh, when I had moved her, when I had moved her out of her apartment into my house, my initial plan was to hire movers to do that. So I went to her apartment to see how much stuff was there. And she had a dog, had a pit bull. And uh, when I walked in the apartment, it was a complete wreck. Um, The dog had defecated throughout the place, had urinated all over the place and everything else. There were, it was, I mean, you talk about a roach infestation. There were roaches literally all over everything. Mm. And I was embarrassed to hire movers to come in to do it. Yeah. So I did it myself. Cleaned the apartment, steamed the rugs myself, uh, moved all of her furniture out, fumigated it, everything else, because I didn't want people to know the way she was living and it'd be associated with me. So I did all that myself. And when I was cleaning, I saw all these straws. And I, I told myself at that time, I was like, well, I knew it was Coke, but I was like, oh, that's just people she's having over, you know, so. Short straws, not yeah, the kind yeah, of Yeah, short cut off straws. Not McDonald's straws. Right, you know. right. So, um, of course, when I find that in her purse with, with Coke in there, it breaks me, man. I mean, she's in there asleep in the bed, and I'm like, she's a Cokehead. Well, that's not enough for me. I have to find out exactly who Elizabeth is. So I get back online, 
And uh, there was a site, and I think that site's probably still up today. It's called USA Sex Guide, where you could actually go through and uh, uh, read their posts on different strip clubs or escorts or anything else in your city. So I pull up strip club section and start going through looking for her strip club, find it, and find posts about her where she's selling herself for Coke. And it tells exactly what she does for that Coke. So I'm sitting there reading all that. So uh, of course I'm I'm sitting here in tears and everything else. You know that my my girl is not only a cokehead but she's a prostitute. So I go in and uh, wake her up. I'm sitting there crying. And I was like, "Look, man," I said, uh, I "Found this cocaine in your in your bag," and uh, I didn't mention the prostitute stuff to her. I was like, "I found this in your bag, and I can't have that." And uh, she started crying, and she's like, it's not what you think it is. Well, of course, I know it is, because I've already read all that bullshit. Yeah. But I don't tell her that. I don't want to confront her with all that. And I was like, well, I just can't have this. And she's like, I'll never do it again. All right. About three, three days later, she disappears again. 7.30 in the morning. Calls me. Come get me. I can't make it home. It's like, all right. So before I go and get her, Sat down and wrote her a letter. Left it on the bed. Go and get her. Bring her back to, to the house. Take her in the bedroom. Tuck her in the bed. Put the letter next to her. I was like, look, I'm going to Columbia, South Carolina today. I'll be back tonight. I've got a letter here for you. And that letter basically said, if you can't stop Coke, don't be here when you get back. when I get back tonight. So I came back that night, I guess 10 or 11 o'clock, and... Uh, she had quit her job, and after that, she didn't use cocaine anymore. Did not. But, here's the thing. The attic has to replace it with something. Yeah, replace with sex? Nope. Did oh. not. Did not. So, uh, what it became was, Elizabeth, she could not be intimate unless she was completely wasted. So instead of snorting coke, it became alcohol. Oh. Massive, massive amounts of alcohol. Yeah, that's okay. what that was. And for her to be the least bit um, intimate with me, she had to be passing out. Literally passing out. If I touched her, if put a hand on her shoulder, tried to kiss her or anything else, it was screaming at me. Don't. And uh, that was the relationship. Was that. It got to, she kept wanting to go back to... Uh, to strip clubs and stuff like that, and I'd always say no. <laughs> you know, no. And of course, I lied to her about what I did for a living, too. I'm a fraud consultant. And I got it in my head that uh, if I could just keep her mind off of drugs, she'd be alright. And the way I wanted to keep her mind off of drugs, whatever she wants is exactly what I'll give her. Mm -hmm. So that became every single week. Two to three thousand dollars on a purse, thousand dollars on a pair of shoes, every single night, and I mean every single night, because I used to eat at the house a lot. I I, I can I, I cook pretty well, so I used to fix my own meals. I'd just go out to a restaurant occasionally. Well, that became every single night, high dollar dinners. So every night was four to seven hundred dollars for dinner, and that was my life all of a sudden. And uh, she wanted to go to strip clubs. I refused to do that. I just. Uh, I didn't have any need for that. I had who I wanted at the house. And uh, that was that was the life I had of that. I got to the point, so the last episode we did, I talked about how Shadowproof got busted. Right. Okay. So I meet Elizabeth. This is in uh, early 2004. Shadow Crew, I, I stop, I, I retire from Shadow Crew April of 04. I'm with Elizabeth, and I'm not breaking the law because Elizabeth gets to the point where I guess I become that, that kind of rock for her. So she's not doing coke, but she's afraid to be left alone. She doesn't want to be alone at, at all, and I will not violate the law while she's with me. Right. So um, I'm spending a lot of money on her, a lot. Um, 
one time she wanted to buy jeans. So I'm like, sure, sweetheart, let's go get you a pair of jeans. Where do you want to go? I want to go to Saks Fifth Avenue. Okay. <laughs> I never purchased anything at Saks before. So we walk into Saks. I go over to men's section. I'm looking at shirts at $375 a piece. I'm like, that's a lot of money for a shirt. <laughs> I look across the way to the women's section. And Elizabeth is over there at the jeans counter. And she's, it's like a conveyor belt. She's just slamming one pair of jeans on top of another. Ends up like 10 pair. I walk over and it's this brand seven for all mankind, $225 a pair. I'm like, that's the jeans you want. <laughs> and of course, I'm like, sure, sweetheart, whatever you want. So I'm going through money like it's going out of style. The problem is, is that most of my money has been laundered over to Estonia. I've got a, a bankroll in the United States that's supposed to do me for the rest of the year. The rest of it is overseas. Well, that, that's supposed to do me the rest of the year. I go through that in the space of two to three months because we're, sp we're spending like that. Not only that, but some weekends I'll withdraw, say, ten or $11,000 from, from the bank, mm. and then Monday morning won't have any money and nothing to show for it and no idea where it went because we spent a lot of money on drinks, stuff like that. And, and playing Big Shot. You know, we go into a, a dance club and get the VIP booth. You know, and get the $300 of champagne bottles over and over and over like that. So um, I go through all the stateside money. I'm not violating the law because Elizabeth is with me basically 24-7 at this point. I guess that's part of the attic mentality, too, once you start recovering. Shadow Crew makes the front cover of Forbes. And then the Secret Service sweep, sweep in October 26th and bust the site. And here I am in Charleston watching John Ashcroft, the Attorney General, mm -hmm. talk about the site that I built <laughs> on CNN. And I'm sitting there going, this is not good. <laughs> but it made you a star. Well, yeah, star. Sort of. and, and the thing it was is I had lived my life up until that point <clears throat> being nomadic. If something was going south, I could pick up everything and move to another area. Elizabeth stopped that. She was that rock. For me, all of a sudden, those, those ties could not leave with her. She didn't know what I did for a living. She thought I was a legitimate person. And I had to keep up that facade at the same time. So I, was, I went through all my stateside money. I hadn't been engaging in tax return identity theft because she was with me. I couldn't very well break the law and then go withdraw all that money while she was there. So I go through all the stateside money I've got. Shadow Crew gets busted as tax season is ending. Tax season, you can't file returns after October 15th. Shadow Crew gets busted October 26th. So can't go tax fraud. Can't go into credit cards because that's online shadow crew had just been busted i didn't know who to trust anymore guess what the only avenue i have left paper paper that one thing that i have preached my entire life not to run you do not do checks you fucking idiot if you do checks you're guaranteed to go to prison that was the only avenue i had and i needed the money because i couldn't get it from overseas sent it back to me it was all over there so I start running counterfeit cashier's checks. Elizabeth wanted a... So I start, I start buying bullion and cashing out bullion. I had a coin dealer in Charleston that would buy anything that I brought him. And he, he got a good deal on it. I got a good deal on it. So I was fencing everything through him. Elizabeth wanted um, a Tiffany engagement ring. That's what she wanted. And I'm all about giving her what she wanted. So I pay for a Tiffany engagement ring... $20,000 counterfeit cashier's check. Have it sent, to have, buy it through eBay, pick it up uh, from a UPS driver. A drop address. Give the UPS driver the counterfeit cashier's check. That's how I was getting the bullion and coin collections as well. I had a series of drops throughout South Carolina that I was paying for everything with counterfeit cashiers through COD orders. Right. So what happens is, is of course... Of course, because I'm in the same area, I can't very well go to North Carolina or Georgia or anyplace else because Elizabeth is with me. They know that 
Some idiot, probably Brett Johnson, Gollum Fun, is in South Carolina running checks. For some reason, he's not leaving the area of South Carolina. He's there. So let's start looking at all these COD orders for high dollar items coming in. Find out what's coming through. We know he's doing bullion. We know he's doing rings. What can we get him on? So that's how I get caught. The way I actually got caught, I didn't have the money to... Um, I didn't have the money to buy the wedding rings. I certainly didn't have it for the engagement ring, so I stole that. She wanted Tiffany wedding rings. Mm, of course. Of course. So I find a couple of Tiffany wedding rings on eBay, scam the people into sending them to me COD. Elizabeth, like I said, she didn't know what I did for a living. So that morning, I'd been telling her, I've got to go pick up some packages. You know, they've got some stuff being sent in. Um... I'll be back in a few hours. And that's how I was able to get away long enough to do that. So um, told her I was going to go pick up some packages. I'd be back in an hour and a half. She didn't hear from me for about 12 hours. So what happens is, is I go to this drop address that was at the same apartment complex I used to be at. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew what time UPS was running. So I'm kind of touring you know, around waiting for the UPS driver and everything. So I end up coming out of the neighborhood, see the UPS driver, stop him, get out. I was like, hey, you got a package for me. He's like, yeah, what's your name? And I tell him the name. He's like, uh, I got to deliver it at the address. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I can't give it to you here. I have to deliver it at the actual address. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll see you at the address in a minute. He's like, okay. So I drive down to the address. UPS pulls up. I get out of the car, walk up to him. I was like, now, can I get my package? He's like, yeah, you got an ID. So I showed him the ID. He's like, that's $17,000. Hand him a cashier's check. He hands me the box. I turn around. There's the FBI and the Charleston Police Department. Guns drawn. You're under arrest. Turns out there's about 30 of them in the parking lot <laughs> waiting on Brett Johnson. The UPS officials are there, everybody else. They arrest me. And uh, they didn't even know who I was to begin with. They, uh, I, I had the ID. I had an ID in the name Brett Johnson. They were like, "Who are you really?" I was like, "I'm Brett Johnson." No, who are you really? <laughs> like, I'm Brett Johnson. Damn it! So it took them about fifteen twenty minutes for them to realize I was Brett Johnson. They take me at that point in time. Cybercrime was not. Cybercrime was not on many law enforcement's radar, so they didn't have any place to interview cyber criminals. So they took me to the place where they interviewed drug people. That's what they did. And uh, the agent's name, her name was, her FBI agent, her name was Cynthia McCants. was her name. So they take me in there, sit me down in the interrogation room. There's her, there's a Charleston PD guy, and I'm sitting across the table from him. Cynthia's like, you know, we'd like to show you a few things first. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so she opens up this folder, and in the folder there's only one sheet of paper. She takes out that sheet of paper, slides it across the desk to me. It's a photocopy of a fake driver's license I had used a year earlier. And she's like, does that look familiar? And I was like, yeah, it's a little bit heavier, but that's me. As soon as I said that, door of the interrogation room opens. Two Secret Service agents walk in. They sit down, look at me. We'd like to talk to you about some counterfeit credit cards. And I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. So I don't talk to them about anything. They want to search the house. Elizabeth, at this point, again, she doesn't know where I am. And I figure she's been calling by this point. I tell the agents, I was like, look, you can search the house. I'll sign off on search tonight as long as I can go to the house with you. And they agreed to that. Well, they had already been cased, so they had sent a couple agents around to look around the house and everything. They'd said that, hey, there's only a girl in there with a dog. <laughs> so, signed off on the paperwork. They escort me down there. I get to the house, and there's probably, parked outside, because Elizabeth was never good about looking outside, there's probably 15 cop cars parked outside. All the neighbors, of course, are, what the hell's going on? <laughs> They, they t take me up at the lead to the door. There's probably 30 agents, local, state, and federal law enforcement officers behind me. 
all right? And I'm knocking on the door, ring the doorbell. Elizabeth comes to the door. She sees all that. And I'm like, look, put the dog up. She's like, what the hell is going on? I was like, put the dog up. I'll explain it afterwards. Put the dog up. So she puts the dog in the cage, and we come in, and that's where Elizabeth finds out that her fiancé, because by this point I'm her fiancé, I, uh, I had to ask her to marry me, she had agreed to it. That was February 8th of 2005, the wedding date was February 26, 2005. So um, she finds out that Brett Johnson's a criminal right then. They come in and they swarm that house, leave it in shambles. I had, uh, I had stolen her a Philip Paddock or Philippe Patek watch, $8,800. I had stolen that. She had it on her wrist. They took that off her wrist. And uh, she's sitting there just bawling, man. Bawling. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to calm her down as it's evident that everything's went south for me. And uh, that's how I was arrested at that point. And I'll, we'll talk more about that the next episode, but uh, they ended up giving me a job. Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's Brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. Please tell your friends about us. Rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.